I hope we talk about the cat that Ptolemy holding in that one scene. Yeah, guys. <laughs> All right. Hello, and welcome to Movies We Dig, the podcast about film, antiquity, and everything in between. I'm Elijah Fleming. I'm Colin McCormick. And today we're going to be talking about Cleopatra, the 1963 historical epic starring Elizabeth Taylor as the titular queen of Egypt. And I am super excited to introduce our two awesome guests this week. Uh, we have Dr. Nicole Becklinger, Assistant Professor of Engineering at the University of Southern Indiana and Dr. Jeremy Swiss, the heavy metal classicist himself, uh, adjunct lecturer in classics at Xavier University and the University of Texas at San Antonio. So Jeremy, Nikki, welcome you guys. Great to be here. Thanks for yeah. the invitation. Of course, we, we like need guests because guests is like when it's just Eli and I for too long, it like we kind of fold in on each other. It, it, we just run out of things and like yeah, we it just, kind of gets stale. We just like, stare at each other. <laughs> it, yeah. So we like we, we need the like variety and like the new voice because otherwise also we end up like just talking about the same things over and over again. So like <laughs> we definitely need you guys here. But we can just start right in. The first question we always have is, do you dig this movie? Which is often a very sort of complicated answer. Okay, I guess I'll start on that. So I never watched this movie, you know, for entertainment. Obviously, it came out, you know, decades before I was born. And so, like, I've heard about it, you know, brought up in my, you know, history classics classes as an undergrad. But I never actually watched it until a few months ago when I was doing some research on the reception of Cleopatra in Heavy Metal And I figured that, you know, because of the influence and just the cultural impact of Liz Taylor's portrayal of her, I thought it would be, you know, important for research purposes. And it was. Uh, But man, it was a slog getting through those four hours. Like I have, you know, legit ADHD and, you know, it was a tall order getting through that. And I watched it again last night, you know, preparing for this show. And now that I kind of knew what was going on, it was even harder to pay attention. So Mm -hmm. I would say it's not really a movie that I would dig. <laughs> yeah, how about you, Nikki? Um, I mean, overall, I liked it in the sense that I found it enjoyable. I think it's a lot of fun. It's very, like, to me, it comes off as very retro. Like, it's very a 1960s movie to me, which I enjoy. It is very long. Like, that's the main, like not so great part about it like I actually ended up having to pause it <laughs> three or four times because I had other stuff I had to do that came up I had seen it before when I was little but I think this is the first time that I've sat down and like tried to watch it all the way through several times <laughs> in preparation for this so but I mean overall I liked it it just it's maybe better as a miniseries than as a movie I guess <laughs> yeah I was actually totally gonna say that it I, feels more like a miniseries if I you think break it into like four hours <laughs> you could you could yeah, chop it up yeah. into like five or six parts easily I think and like yeah. it, would, it would flow much better especially since they have those time jumps and the intermission I mean you'd, it would be really really easy to just divide this into episodes and call it a mini series and I think that'd be great mm-hmm. my uh you know I watched HBO's Rome you know three times through since it came out and so I really enjoyed that show and you know even though season two has all its problems because it was rushed uh you know I still really enjoyed it Um, And so I was sort of viewing this film kind of 
with that set of expectations and thinking, yeah, a miniseries would work so much better for this, you know, just 15 years of history that they rush through here. I, I kept finding myself actually, cause it's been years since like, I don't think I've seen Rome recently, at least probably not, not last time I saw Rome was like maybe close to when it came out, but I kept finding myself like flipping back. I'm like, how did they do this in Rome? Cause I have like memories of like Cleopatra's character. And I like kept jumping back and forth, like pulling up YouTube to like do like a side by side. Yeah, I feel the length thing. I like Jeremy, like the ADHD, like the, the thing I struggle most with in watching movies sometimes is like pacing. And if a movie is slowly paced, I have a very hard time. And I think that's just a testament of like my age and like the generation of movies I kind of grew up with and watch now. But we've also been like, Elon and I have been kind of, we're starting to go through these kind of classic Hollywood ones, which are just generally slower paced. That's just kind of a, the nature of it. And like the most recent one we watched was Quo Vadis. And I like this one way more than Quo Vadis. Um, yes, I completely agree. I was going to say, if we're just comparing this to the other, like, recent, I guess, classics e old school, long movie, this was much more entertaining than Quo Vadis. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and I know it's like 11 or 12 years after, and but it really shows. Like, it just it looks does. better. Like, the everything's much more sort of fleshed out. Yeah, um, like the writing seemed to be much better. The characters actually seem to have characterization, dare I say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're going to get into that. Okay. <laughs> One-liners, yeah. Yeah. I wrote down a bunch of the quotes that I kind of liked. Uh, the soup is cold. The soup <laughs> is hot. Anthony is living. Anthony is dead. Oh, yeah. <laughs> dead, yippee. <laughs> yeah, that was, I have problems with Octavian's character in that. But. Yeah, I, I have like sort of my docket. He's sort of, he's low down, but... But yeah, had you seen this one before? Because we mentioned like every like everyone who has ever taken like a intro to Rome or, or ancient Mediterranean civilizations or something like that has probably seen the like famous Cleopatra's entrance to Rome. Uh, was- so I think I'd seen that, but I, I had never seen yeah. the movie before. Two, I, it took me two days to watch this, admittedly. Same. Yes. No, I, I did it in two sittings. And I have a couple different things on that. But yeah, I feel like every like young classics undergrad or archaeology student in like my generation, we would watch that in class, her procession into Rome, um, just as sort of a a reception kind of uh, analysis and an actual just like, you know, view of the ancient world. (laughs) So that part I have seen multiple times and I had never actually seen the rest of the movie and I had very little idea of like how how much it encompassed. I was like, oh, Caesar's here. Cool. And then I was like, oh, Caesar's already dead. Oh, I guess we're going all the way. <laughs> well, that, and then Actium happens and I'm like looking, I'm like, there's like an hour left of movie. What's where, right. like, where are we going from here? <laughs> exactly. And so I didn't really fully understand how much it encompassed, but I did read that originally they thought it was going to be two movies. Right? They, the, the original cut was six, six hours. hours. Yeah. <laughs> and they wanted it in two. And then, and then 20th Century Fox, who, by the way, was almost bankrupted by this film. But it was the most, it was the most expensive film ever made and remained that for a while. I looked this up actually, but at the end we can play my, I have a little trivia game of like, what's the most expensive films all time. This one's still in 26 of all time, adjusted for inflation. Wow. And, but yeah, oh, it's got, it's, there's all these nightmare stories about, the production, like they filmed the first 10, they they spent like $7 million and came away with like 10 minutes of footage, and fired <laughs> the first director. Taylor and Richard Burton were having an, a real life affair off screen, which was a whole scandal. But yeah, Wild. 
Yeah, well, I find myself, I liked Rex Harrison better than Richard Burton, but that, yes. maybe that's my hot take. I don't know. No, yeah, so let's actually, let's start with, I think, like, like due diligence. Let's start with just Cleopatra herself, because this, I have thoughts that I'm still piecing together, and also just because Cleopatra is kind of coming back into the news cycle a little bit. But yeah, Liz Taylor, Cleopatra, 1963, what's going on? What do you, what do you guys think? Um, I mean, it's still... I'm going to say this a lot. It was very 1960s. Like this is very much a 1960s movie, not a historic movie, like with a thin, thin veneer of history laid over it. Some of the major events laid over it, but like just her portrayal of Cleopatra as a person, it's very, very like much in that kind of romanticized, oh, she's just doing this because she's in love with all these men and that's what's driving her. And I think if you look at the historical figure, that's not so much the case. I mean, the historical Cleopatra was just a brilliant person. Um, she spoke all these languages. She was actually the first ruler of Egypt in several hundred years to learn how to speak Egyptian. You know, she was a brilliant politician. You know, a lot of what she did, even in her personal relationship, there was a lot of political strategy involved whereas in the movie it totally takes the the very much 1960s theme of you know there's this beautiful woman who likes to lounge around like naked or almost naked and you know try to gain power by manipulating all these powerful men and so I mean and I enjoy it because I enjoy a lot of 1960s movies but I think there's a pretty big like as far as personality departure from the historical Cleopatra and, uh, you know, the lens as I was viewing this through was, you know, my research on that I've been working on the reception of various ancient women, mythological and historical in by heavy metal bands and heavy metal bands received Cleopatra and others kind of in two ways that kind of do a disservice to the historical figure, which is one way is more in line with what Nikki just described, where, you know, her priority was love and sort of everything else was secondary to that. Um, and, you know, a lot of heavy metal bands, you know, play with that. Like, for instance, there's one, one of the first heavy metal songs on Cleopatra was actually by an Italian band that was talking about the second circle of hell in Dante's Inferno, where she's mm. in the, the, with the lustful and so sort of perpetuating a lot of the medieval picture of her you know, as this sort of just uh, corrupt lover who let, you know, her passions, you know, govern her politics rather than the other way around. And then the other side of her that a lot of these bands play with, and I think, you know, out, and it's also outside of this genre is that she's not actually in love with any of these people. And Mickey alluded to this a bit, that she is purely manipulating these people to gain power. And this is the picture that Plutarch paints in the life of Antony, where he even says she used her magic charms, um, you know, kind of playing with figurative language, um, you know, philtrois is the word he uses, you know, to kind of paint this picture that she's basically this Eastern sorceress, femme fatale, who manipulated Antony and therefore subverted the natural order of things when it comes to gender and power. So when I looked at, you know, Liz Taylor's depiction, yeah, it was largely her passions were governing it. But, you know, there was also, there were scenes where I, where it seemed like her passions also started to feed some kind of megalomania when she was interacting with Caesar. So it was like, there wasn't really a middle ground that she could occupy, you know, that was more like Stacey Schiff's biography's presentation of her as, you know, she's doing this for the good of her country and all of that. 
So <laughs> yeah, there's like a, I'm like speaking over my cat. There, there's this like, it was kind of muddled to me, like you were talking about, because it's like, and, and like, she seems to have, at least as they're portraying her, this kind of God complex thing that she has that whole debate with Caesar about, where she's like, you know, she's like, I am a divinity and you're sort of doing the same thing just in like a, with just with extra steps by claiming your ancestry to Venus and something like that. And then constantly she's always, and like, not just her, but everyone is like, I am Egypt. And like her, that sort of conflation that Cleopatra is Egypt. And then it's sort of, you know, it's very like, it's a, it's a particular kind of, I guess, of view of monarchy or something that's very like Sun King-esque to be yeah. like, I am the state. But yeah, but yeah, like her, there was almost this conflicting. And my thought was like, how much has this character and this portrayal sort of influenced just other sort of female characters? Like how many, like for the next however many decades are female characters or quote unquote, like strong female characters, like kind of riffing off Cleopatra. Cause she has these, a lot of really great, like again, air quotes, like girl boss moments or something like that, where she like really tells somebody off or just kind of put somebody in their place or like said, has like a really biting comeback, but then also just the way they shoot her and, you know, have the, the, the way they, all of her outfits and like the amount of just bathing scenes they have. And the way they introduce her, that really kind of cut against one another. And it's just very, I'm like confusing my own points because I don't even know quite how to tease it all out because it's all very wrapped up in one another. So another thing they're kind of doing, so Cleopatra was part of the Ptolemaic dynasties, which were like much later in Egyptian history. And you also have this thing going on where their their history part of it, a lot of it is drawing back to like earlier times in Egypt, like New Kingdom, 18th and 19th dynasty. I mean, there were periods in history where the pharaohs, the rulers of Egypt were thought to be literal god and but that's like a much earlier thing so there's also kind of this weird like they can't pick a point in the egyptian timeline that they're drawing from they're kind of drawing from all of it so you wind up with these references that are like a thousand years two thousand years before cleopatra's time that get thrown in there randomly and there's no like <laughs> yeah <laughs> They didn't really like stick to her actual time period. They're pulling a lot of Egyptian stuff from way earlier too. So yeah, I mean it, that's like we we've complained about. Well, there's like there, there's two things actually to the the first point, Nikki, that you were saying. Of like one of our like repeated phrases on this podcast is like these movies really say more about the time period they were made in than the actual time period they're about. This is 100 percent the case here and also they just really tend to like compress and flatten. If ever there's a movie about Greek myth, you'll get like a you, you know, like we, we complain like, oh, there's like an eighth century statue next to a fifth century um, yeah. <laughs> sculpture next to a whatever Constantine's arch or what. I think they even do that here. Like doesn't Caesar yeah. march through basically yeah. the arch of Constantine or something like that. I mean, um, yeah. It's a it's a very impressionistic way to like and it's it's I mean, this is a complaint people have about a lot of movies about not just historical movies, but just anything dealing with sort of another culture where it just tends to kind of like flatten it into this like mm -hmm. packageable, here's all the Egypt stuff that, here's all the visual iconography of Egypt that you recognize, you know, the headdresses, the, yeah. <laughs> the scepters that she's always carrying, the all the, the, the jewelry, the art, the, the hieroglyphics, everything, mm -hmm. throw it all in there. Oh gosh, and some of it is so bad. <laughs> What, what stood out to you as, as particularly heinous? I want to hear. Like that kind of first scene with the Egyptians where it's her brother. Um, I think that would be Ptolemy the 13th. 13th. 
14th was the second one. 14th was the 12 year old she married, but then like her teenage, early 20 year old brother, that's the 13th. So his advisor, simultaneously good thing and bad thing. They had him wearing a wig, which is, I I don't know as much about Greco-Roman overall, but like Egyptians wearing wigs, this is a thing that pleased me. But then at the same time, he's wearing this like flat, like pleather collar thing with like some random designs on it and it's like that collar just irked me for some reason because I mean they would wear the collars but they would be like made out of gold and beads and they would be like proper jewelry um with his it's like they took some sort of fake foam thing and stuck some vaguely Egypty looking things on it and I'm just like like from a spirit Halloween yeah yeah like this this character simultaneously pleases me because of the wig and irks me because of that collar like <laughs> I it was definitely like all of the Roman armor you can tell was like foam board. Like yeah. when Antony takes something off, it just like you yeah. know wobbles all around. So like whacking their shields, and you could see them like kind of wiggling. <laughs> And all of the 1960s, like the gold lame fabric on everything, like cloth of gold does not look like that. That is very obviously 1960s fake plastic (laughs) shininess. The thing I thought about was, you know, the first scene where you see Alexandria and you see what looks like the palace and it's a very Greek style palace looking. So I was like, oh, uh, maybe they will acknowledge that these are Hellenistic kings and queens instead of, you know, uh, they're not coming out of like, old, a big pyramid old, or something. Old kingdom pharaohs. And, but, you know, once you go inside, then there's all the, the pharaonic artwork and, you know, the, the dress and, and all these other things. And I'm thinking about, well, yes. Uh, and Nikki can, you know, can elaborate on this. You know, the Ptolemies would present themselves more as Egyptian in public, but inside the palace, you know, it would be much more Greek style presentation. Um, yeah. And I mean, not as, not a lot is known exactly on where that line was, like how much they were like just in their everyday sitting around the house if they would be dressing more like Greeks or more like Egyptians. Because all we really have of their stuff is the state portraits, which they were kind of obviously playing both sides. Like you see, you know, some very Greek and very Roman style um, statues, coins, things like that. And this goes for all the Ptolemies too, not just Cleopatra. But then they also have themselves portrayed in a very traditionally Egyptian way, you know, trying to go back to, you know, what things were like in the New Kingdom. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and not always doing it very well. Like some of the Egyptian side of the Ptolemaic art is like the the sculpture and the quality of the work is not necessarily up to par with some of the earlier stuff. But you can tell that they were really trying to like go for the same gist. <laughs> Right. So I guess we could also touch on, I guess, like who we think is appropriate to even play Cleopatra if she is this sort of amalgamation of Ptolemaic ancestry, which is technically Macedonian versus Egyptian, and how we've had a resurgence in this argument, right? Because Gal Gadot has just has been announced to be playing Cleopatra in a new biopic. So yeah, do you guys have strong strong feelings on the, this? <laughs> this is such a minefield that I know. like- I'm sorry, I asked. No, it's, it's, it's like, we, we can't not talk about it. It's like not only relevant, it's like deeply important, but like I was just brushing up. There's, there's two articles in the Society of Classical Studies blog I was just revisiting. And we can link to them in the description that just kind of, I think does a pretty good job, like kind of unpacking the like layers of complexity that are going on here, because it's like the movie is framing itself as this very like feminist empowerment kind of statement piece. 
and like the sort of main criticism that I think I had a quote that I picked out that the the article has is that the sort of controversy of this sort of like feminist humanist sort of front because it's also it's Gal Gadot and then Patty Jenkins is directing of Wonder Woman of fame whether or not the movie's actually like this like the kind of there's a natural line to draw between kind of what the Wonder Woman movies were doing the second one is a that's well that's neither here well never mind I didn't like <laughs> Wonder Woman 2 because of wish logic but that's that's neither here nor there but then the the controversy of like Gal Gadot's statements about sort of like Israeli occupation and sort of anti-Palestinian that kind of and like colonialist and in sort of imperialist agendas that really kind of cuts against that kind of feminist humanist positioning the larger debate of Cleopatra's sort of Greekness versus her Egyptianness which not only gets into like the controversies in like Greece and Macedon like over like Greek versus Macedonian and like where you want to position Alexander and all of his successors in that sort of spectrum there's a huge ongoing sort of debate over like culture and ethnicity in between greece and the republic of north macedon is that what it's called now the former yugoslav republic of northern macedonia i think is what it's called officially oh Oh, no (laughs) uh and then layered on top of that of like cleopatra as this cultural figure in modern egypt and like sort of pan-arabic popular culture and things like that and then the other layer in like sort of western spheres of like whiteness blackness non-whiteness and all this stuff kind of compounds so there's like eight different ways to like pull this thing apart and really like i think the the article another quote is like there's just no neutral casting there's no neutrality in this and then cleopatra has sort of grown in in ways that i'm failing to describe at this moment yeah i mean my two thoughts on this are first going off your point there this this kind of does relate back to the whole uh black athena controversy, you know, in the field of classics and adjacent fields that was just completely mishandled mm-hmm. with like Lefkowitz's response. And, you know, for this, uh, I'd refer people to uh, my friend and former colleague, Denise McCoskey's Adelon article talks mm-hmm. about that and just kind of the difficulties of handling those sorts of questions. As for my opinion on this upcoming film, um, I have a couple. Well, first, again, I'm referring back to HBO's Rome here. And Lindsay Marshall's presentation in Rome certainly did her more justice than I think Liz Taylor, because it gives her more complexity, though there is still, you know, a lot of these kind of Orientalist tropes thrown in there. But, uh, you know, a miniseries or full-fledged drama would probably be better at telling her story than a film. Otherwise, it runs into either the Liz Taylor movie where it's too long. It does the Alexander thing. Mm, where yeah. You incorporate too much of Plutarch's stuff and, and otherwise in there. But my strongest opinion on this, and I'm not alone in this, is do we really need another film on Cleopatra? There's so many more ancient Egyptian and otherwise women who are just, who who need a movie, who need to be brought into the spotlight, like Zenobia. Mm, like, yeah. Yeah, like Tachepsid <laughs> or Nefertiti. <laughs> um, you know, Cleopatra is hogging all the oxygen here. Let's bring some more depth to antiquity. The face of ancient women should be more than Cleopatra. I love that. Yes. Yeah. That's, that's actually, that's the best take. And I can't really follow that because you're absolutely right. Yeah. There's, there's, there's plenty of stuff to pick from. Yeah. Zenobia would be, would be actually, I think a great movie. And then that I think what awesome. else is, yeah. Cause yeah. And then is, is, is sort of free of the, the baggage that Cleopatra comes with, not just like Cleopatra sort of in all these different places and, and her cultural significance, whether it's Greek, Macedon, Egypt, Israel, 
the United States, wherever. And then like her film legacy and how many other Cleopatras and like, just like start fresh. I mean, but then I, there's a whole other debate we get to of like, there's no new ideas in Hollywood now. I mean, there are, but like, it, it's, a, it's, it's a pretty, I think, cliche complaint to make at this point, but that like everything is either a sequel or a reboot. But outside of Zenobia, is there any like, who would you want a movie made about? Hatshepsut. <laughs> could you could you inform the the um, the unenlightened? I yeah, like she's a yeah, female pharaoh. Um, That's about all I know. Yeah, yeah. So um, she's from the mid 18th dynasty. She's one of my favorite, you know, rulers of ancient Egypt. So basically, she was a woman who was the pharaoh. And this means more than you would think it would mean on the surface. There have been other women who have ruled Egypt, but usually it's like, oh, well, I'm the queen. I'm ruling on behalf of my husband. I'm ruling on behalf of my son who's a child. There's a lot of that going on. And Hatshepsut kind of starts off that way too. Um, she had a young son and she was kind of started off as a regent, but then she went and declared herself Pharaoh. Like Pharaoh, like wearing men's clothing, wearing a fake beard, wearing the male headdress, male titles. She was kind of perpetuating this myth about herself that even though she had a woman's body, that she was still the son of Ra, that the god had visited her mother and she was his child. You know, she was a fantastic builder. Um, she had an amazing architect that she worked with and built a number of different, you know, temples, monuments, and sphinxes, you know, and she ruled for I don't remember the number of years off the top of my head, but a relatively long time. More, more than most, right? More than most, more than what you would expect, you know, given the lifespan of mm -hmm. <laughs> typical people at that time. But she lived to a fairly old age. She established all these trade relations with other countries. You know, she was really like a heck of a ruler, any way you want to cut it. And nobody knows about her. And that's so sad. Yeah. <laughs> um, she should totally have her own movie, I think. <laughs> I already want to watch this movie. Yeah, sounds <laughs> The whole, like, just that whole dynamic you described about the, like, being the son of Ra, like, to my mind, opens up so many different possibilities that you could take that, that idea that, like, it boggles the mind. Or, I mean... No, I was I was gonna bring my pessimism in, but like, or they could just really mishandle that. Yeah. No. yeah. <laughs> so. I wonder if this is then like my pessimism talking, but that like because she has Sheps, it was like so awesome and like didn't have any sort of you know crazy disaster or like terrible end that mm -hmm. like we are like are not as interested. We need a tragedy. Like, yeah, we need a tragedy and like Cleopatra and like you know fall of the Roman Republic is like super tragic and therefore like that's where we put all of our attention are we just that like negative I mean, focus? Was some drama i mean eventually her son did get older and kind of went okay okay it's time <laughs> i'm ready and then she's like, nope, and just kind of shut him down. So, um, I mean, you could play up to that. Her son was Ramses. Was he a Ramses, a Thutmose, or? An Amenhotep, I believe. Okay, all right. Yeah, Ramses was later. Yeah. Um, was, he, was he a Thutmosis? Oh. I, I forget. I, for some reason, I thought it was somebody, one of the more notable ones. I mean, it's a commoner name. Let me let me check this here. Uh, he was a Thutmose, Thutmose Third. Okay, but that's a significant one, right? Not particularly. <laughs> I'm thinking of most of them. No, I mean, there were some other ones that were, I forget which numbers. There were a number of notable Thutmoses. He was not one. And that might play into the idea that, you know, 
in order to get her movie, she, there has to be <laughs> there has to be a significant male figure that married to one too. The involved, I don't know, just like Antony Cleopatra or Nefertiti and Akhenaten, and but you know that that kind of goes along with again from my own stuff the heavy metal reception of ancient Egyptian women, which I've been working on lately is uh, yeah lots of stuff on Cleopatra, very little on Hatshepsut, and the other two are Nefertiti and Nitocris. And pretty much all the songs on Nefertiti, you know, are sung about her in relation to Akhenaten, you know, whether it's talking about Akhenaten or the two of them as these kind of rebels who, you know, defy Egyptian religion, or on the other hand, there's these Akhenaten's, this proto-Constantine who is trying to like get rid of the the true religion. And then there's some songs that even play into the Cleopatra stereotypes that she actually manipulated Akhenaten. And then with Metocris, you know, she is... I believe according to Egyptologists actually never existed and that she was made up or, you know, mis misheard or whatever by Herodotus, who told this story about she came to the throne after her brother, the Pharaoh, was killed, and she brought in all of the people who were responsible for his murder to a banquet in some underground chamber and then at some signal, she released some lever, which caused the waters of the Nile to flood the chamber and kill everybody inside. Oh, and amazing. so <laughs> a bunch of metal bands took this story and ran with it, turning her into some sort of like Elizabeth Bathory type kind of evil queen character. And actually there's there's influence of H.P. Lovecraft here as well, because he some of his short stories uh, allude to this at least. And so it, I just, I find that really fascinating uh, how they kind of, her mythology just uh, has developed to this day. But, that is so metal. That would be, and I think there's even like anime characters based on her that are pretty, that are pretty badass. I think she's in the Fate, Fate Grand Order <laughs> I think so, yeah. <laughs> so speaking of like uh, other rulers to sort of uh, pivot, not to like completely confirm Jeremy's point about the like necessity. <laughs> we were like complaining about they feel the need for male characters around it. But I was going to say we could talk about the male <laughs> characters or the male characters around Cleopatra. Because also, and then the other, I, I forgot to mention this earlier, but this movie is my sort of final thought, I think, on Cleopatra is also like, this is an understanding of Cleopatra very much as mediated through Roman sources. Like they say right up front that it's it's Plutarch and Suetonius and Appian, I think, are the main sources. And maybe that's just to give themselves like an air of authority or something like that. But like this is, you know, Cleopatra, and we, we've touched on this already, but like Cleopatra particularly as presented by Octavian, who really made a point to sort of demonize her as this sort of foreign, orientalized, usurper, seductress, sort of witch type kind of character. And this movie very much operates under those assumptions. Well, it could be worse. At least it's based on like Plutarch and like Cassius Theo and Appian and who are a bit more even handed than say, you know, Virgil or Horace and <laughs> propaganda. Yeah. And I think that's one thing where this movie did better than like HBO Rome, because like in this movie, there was the theme of, you know, civil war and like Caesar especially was, you know, very quick to point out that like this isn't a victory if it's over fellow Romans and that, you know, they clearly showed Romans fighting on both sides the whole way through. Whereas at least in HBO Rome, there's more, 
I mean, I think they're conscious of this. They bring in the propaganda that it was basically, you know, a war on Egypt and that Antony was basically completely under control, under the spell of this of this witch, which they that's what they call her, though they're not. They're bringing in a bit more nuance to that because they bring in the news reader who, you know, presents that, and then Mycenas is in the background. So you know, oh, this is the you know, the propaganda machine. So that's just something I thought about. At least this movie gives more of that kind of theme. Yeah, but yeah, but we could talk about because I was gonna say of the two sort of halves to this movie, there's basically a Caesar half and an Antony half, and I like the Caesar half much better than the Anthony Antony half. And I think that's just because I like Caesar in this movie a lot better than I like Antony. <laughs> I, I think I agree with that. I, I really enjoyed Rex Harrison as Caesar. I, I kind of couldn't get the Rex Harrison from My Fair Lady out of my head, though. I had a, like a little bit of Professor Henry Higgins like singing in the back of my head. But as far as, as that first part of the movie, like the first hour and a half to two hours, felt like its own little movie felt really fun and I definitely enjoyed, I think it was faster paced in the front half of it. And so that all kind of added up to, yeah, I liked, I liked Caesar better. I feel like the Richard Burton half slows down. Mm -hmm. uh, And it it, it gets much more muddled and and, and confounds me in other ways. Cause like one of our main complaints about, we were talking about Kowatis is the central relationship just like makes no sense. And part of it is, I think, just the time displacement that like as 21st century viewers, we sort of look for different things or expect a little bit more from a romance story. But like the Caesar sort of relate, the Caesar Cleopatra relation made sense to me as I was seeing it unfold in a way that that Richard Burton as Antony did not make sense to me. You guys have preferences on Antony or Caesar? Movie Caesar, history, Anthony? (laughs) <laughs> that's fair yeah that, that tracks <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah I, I generally agree with that uh and again my standard for mark antony on screen is james purifoy's in hbo rome and he's just I, yeah. love that. I love that actor uh you know he did a great job in altered carbon as well and i feel like he he hit the character a lot better and he's just he was just more entertaining yeah. Burton's Antony was kind of wooden. Uh. <laughs> the description that I had for Antony, I think Cleopatra says at one point, is is wine and self pity because that seems to be the extent is that he's 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 a lush or a drunk and he's just feel bad feels bad for himself all the time because he's not Caesar, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Which again, like, just confounds the whole Cleopatra relationship. So, like when Caesar and Cleopatra meet, there's kind of this like they play this. This, they have this back and forth that I really liked and which was really kind of got me into the movie. I'm like, oh, this is because they're kind of having this like witty repartee and they're like talking statecraft and, you know, and their sort of relationship develops organically. And then the movie seems, at least I think, seems to be positing that Caesar's bid for power, his desire to become emperor, dictator, king or whatever was, was sort of Cleopatra's wish being realized that she wanted him to declare himself a god and be a god and be recognized like in Egypt and her sort of unwillingness or or inability to grasp the way that Rome is going to sort of buckle or or, or just really kick against the idea of like a king, which is what runs Caesar into the trouble that that he gets into. 
But yeah, I mean, I, I like that that Caesar's his whole like his like professional matter of factness. Like when he gets up, like I, I think my, one of my favorite parts was when Alexandria is being attacked, and Caesar goes up to the battlements, and he's got this like, oh, I guess I'm gonna win another battle. And he's like, he's like, oh, like uh, those catapults go destroy them, and his men just like form up and like walk out and like take care of the catapults. And he's like, yep, yeah, all right, I'm gonna go to sleep now. Like things are well in hand, which strikes me as like that's kind of the Caesar energy. I can see that. Yeah, one of my favorite scenes, you know, which kind of demonstrated kind of this, you know, clash of two worlds between you know rome and egypt uh is uh the scene where uh they're talking about catullus and mm, yeah. which, which is strange that they would be reciting catullus in alexandria around the same time he was writing that stuff uh <laughs> but at least they got it mostly right uh and then I, I had my nerd moment where i like turned i was watching it with my partner tracy and i was like oh that's catullus and then like three seconds later they're like oh you're reciting catullus and i like turned with this like shit-eating grin on my face <laughs> i was like look at my degree going to work <laughs> but yeah one of my favorite one-liners from the movie is cleopatra says to caesar uh you know uh catullus doesn't approve of you why don't you have him killed and i felt that was just really illustrative of kind of how she's trying to get caesar to become a proper you know egyptian or hellenistic monarch and that's just incompatible with you know how things are in rome and how he sort of I mean, you know, he doesn't really become the that, that tyrant till the very end, but uh, that's that resonated. Yeah, I think I saw that also in like the the very beginning when Caesar like shops his way up to the front steps, and he says something like, "You're all dressed so wonderfully. Any one of you could be a king." <laughs> and it's very like uh, I don't know, anti, almost like anti monarch, you know, standard Roman kind of feeling that obviously then goes away toward the toward his his end part mm-hmm. in the movie. Mm-hmm. But the whole thing with uh, him, I mean, it was consistent with the story and again, the character development we just touched upon. But just, you know, as ancient history people, it just rubbed me the wrong way that he's like, I want you senators to declare me king tomorrow. <laughs> and I'm just like, oh, like, because that's one of the most fascinating. And I part of my dissertation was kind of dealing with this stuff was like kind of playing with the idea of becoming king, but not wanting to be king. Mm-hmm. And the whole like at the Lupercalia where it's like Anthony runs up with the crown. He's like, no, no crown. I remember like in my Latin class, we, I, I like had them talk about that or I had them talk. They talked about this for like a while, that game that you got that game on the face of it, where it's like, I got to deny the honors, but then like, you know, low key, give me the honors. Yeah. And they just kind of, they kind of ran roughshod over, you know, that just fascinating kind of situation. And then, and then you get to Octavian where basically he's already got that God complex already, but, you know, he just, yeah, Octavian just, there wasn't really complexity to him. No, yeah, Octavian was turned to me, he seemed, they turned him into the main, he's the main villain of the, at least of the back half of the movie, and was a very kind of, like, reptilian almost i don't know how to describe like he's he's, he's very like they, they, when he, they introduce him that's like this guy like is incredibly like wound up super tight he's like that kind of villain where he's like super self-controlled and plotting and methodical and <laughs> kind of like controlling in, in different ways it is a particular take on octavian i guess yeah <laughs> I think when I was watching the second half, Nick walked in and like watched a little bit with me and he says, is Octavian always lying down? He's like, he's like, well, yeah, he never, or he, like lounging. He never shows up to the, the battles because he's like yeah. seasick or like has <laughs> stomach cramps or whatever it is. <laughs> he's like, I haven't seen Octavian stand up once. <laughs> like, yeah, he's, he's like, well, 
like in HBO's Rome, they definitely lean heavy, particularly with like young Octavian, where he's this like little young Republican political mastermind guy. Like he's just kind of like conniving little like twerp who just kind of has some like weird insight on politics. But then I, I, I was, I've, I've, we've talked about this before, but I recently rewatched I Claudius, which I love, but in that, like Brian blessed does Augustus is a very, he's like, Oh, you're all my friends. Come in. Like, let's have a party. The wonderful. He's like, your like uncle that's is jovially talking, which is just like, yeah, these very sort of disparate uh, Octavian slash Augustus is. And there's, there's, there's ancient precedent to that. Like, so, you know, you knew I was going to bring Julian into this. But <laughs> the Emperor Julian wrote, you know, one of my favorite works of ancient literature, uh, a satire called The Caesars, where, you know, all of the gods have all the dead Caesars, deified emperors come to a banquet and they process one by one in order of their reigns. And Octavian comes in and he's described as just changing colors. Mm-hmm. Um, constantly like a chameleon and i think that's great because and that's why there's so many different takes on him because he kind of <laughs> even people in the ancient world had that impression of him he sort of changed the plumage to blend in with the environment yeah and that's his you know he he, he the savviness of his this is my reductive take and and jeremy probably you, you know more about this but the that like when, well, as Antony kind of pieced out and like became sort of distant and separated from Rome and what was going on at Rome and like kind of alienated himself from his own country, Octavian stayed very close to keep his fingers on the pulse at Rome and like sort of read the situation, which is how he was able to sort of turn public opinion against Anthony in the way that he did. And like most famously when he reads the will out loud and he's like, oh, look, Anthony's going to give everything over to, to Egypt. He's going to capitulate and he's a he's a traitor. So like, let's go to Actium. That was kind of his, that was his, one of his savvier ploys, for lack of a better word, which I guess brings us to the third member of this, this, this trio, Antony. And Nikki, you said historical Antony. Yes. Richard Burton, Antony, hard pass. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and this is just my impression. Like, I can't, like, cite academic sources on this, but my impression of him is just, like, a guy is that he was a lot more, like, involved with Egypt, that he was a lot more interested in the country as a whole. I mean, I get the impression by some of the things she did towards the end of her life that Cleopatra really cared about him so much, somewhat, you know, more obviously. I mean, not that she didn't care about Caesar and not that there wasn't a political element to all of this, but like just the way that she's like said to have reacted to his death. You know, some sources have it that she like was clawing at her chest and just was so upset and so distraught. Like it really... It really gives me the impression that she cared about the guy. And I also get the impression that he cared more about like the people of Egypt, maybe mm-hmm. more so than Caesar. But again, yeah. that's all that's all impression. That's not, mm-hmm. not in any way scientific, but <laughs> I mean it makes sense that he wants to win over the Egyptian people because Cleopatra doesn't have to. They that's already guaranteed. So, you know, mm-hmm. especially if he's trying to think of how to create his own version of becoming Roman Empire ruled from Alexandria. Yeah. My like main like sticking point with particularly with Richard Burton's is that is that as I understand them, and I'm not super up on on Antony as the historical or even just the reception of Antony, but is that he's like he's this guy, he has this kind of 
energy like you were saying the hbo rome i think kind of nails this where he's got this like this kind of infectious charisma and like a real capability he's caesar's right hand man for kind of a reason that he's out there you know he gets it done he sort of ingratiates himself with the soldiers and is is a very sort of capable person and also very sort of like a man of sort of i mean not did not unlike a figure like alexander where you know sort of a very capable but also very prone to sort of strong passions and indulgences and vices and all that stuff. And I think this movie actually kind of makes the same mistake that Oliver Stone's Alexander movies, where we get all of the like negative decline elements, like the depression, the alcoholism, the violent mood swings. And we don't really get a lot of the the stuff that made Anthony so popular and preeminent in the first place. Like we, we sort of come to Anthony very later. Like when we meet him at first in the first half of the movie, he's not introduced until I think pretty late. And when we see him, he's just kind of, he seems kind of milquetoast or like, he's just there. He seems like competent, but otherwise unassuming within the text of this movie, at least it doesn't really make sense to me of like, why is he the third most powerful man or one of the three most powerful men in Rome? And like, why is he sort of the quote unquote, like heir to Caesar's legacy or, or wants to be, or could be imagined as such. And I think that's like, kind of just, I think the big feeling of this movie where it really just dwells. And then the final bit is how and why does Cleopatra even love this guy? Cause you know, Caesar, there's this sort of, they're, they're peers in a lot of ways. But with Anthony, is he's just like, he's constantly talking about her dead former husband. He's mean and drunk and moody and kind of creepy. And then it's just like, what, like, what's the allure here? In a way that like, yeah, like we're missing the allure that I think like HBO Rome kind of like, oh, I get it. Like, I get how this guy sort of is so charismatic and infectious in that kind of way. Yeah, I'm just thinking like now that we do get to see Caesar like do like like, be Caesar. like things yeah. yeah he's also you know pretty charismatic he's smart he has all the you know the statecraft and the tactics and we sort of see him winning and we don't get to see Antony really successful at anything yeah I mean yeah. besides Philippi but you know they don't re- they didn't really do much with that mm-hmm yeah. And that's like a very much like a, a framing thing, like where mm-hmm. we open with Caesar at Pharsalus, you know, mm-hmm. sort of immediately after his big victory, dealing with the defeat. And then we start the second half basically in exactly the same way with Anthony at Philippi, like kind of his own, which is like his Pharsalus in a lot of ways. Yeah. I'm curious, Jeremy, do you see like similar, like sort of maybe not flattening, but like uses of mark antony or julius caesar in metal like alongside visions of cleopatra as this sort of like flattened personality that's a good question there is so much about on julius caesar in metal just because he's done so many things um and this gets into kind of issues of nationalism and metal where a lot of italian bands or people of italian heritage like uh you know the guy behind ex deo you know they present a very lionizing version of Caesar, whereas other bands, you know, like bands in, like there's a band in Switzerland um, and uh, called Eluveti and uh, Matthew Taylor at Beloit College uh, wrote a a great piece on this uh, where Caesar and the Romans are viewed as these kind of imperialist villains who are going to take away their freedom and Mm -hmm. all of that. So there's, he's definitely, it's multivalent, the character is, you know, as he is in the sources and everything. Antony, interestingly, is there's much less on him. Whenever you see Antony in metal, it's always, you know, in relation to Cleopatra, there's sort of this inseparable dyad and he's not really presented to anybody really that interesting with any depth he's just he's it's like him in in shakespeare 
Um, oh, okay. You know, presented as someone who's been he's besotten and manipulated by this by this femme fatale, and you know destined to lose because he's not a proper manly man who when <laughs> who's fit to rule and 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 win battles and everything. And uh, you know, I think you know for listeners and you guys, uh, you know, to kind of make this point, Ex Deo, who I was just talking about, they have a song on the Battle of Actium. I went and watched the video for it. Oh, if you want to talk about that video, and Nikki's seen that video, and she she has thoughts on it too. <laughs> Lots of problems with that video, but the portrayal of Antony in that video is he doesn't even go out and fight. He just sort of watches from the palace and then stabs himself at the end of the at all the end of it. Uh, meanwhile, the stand-in for Octavian, who is played by Maurizio Iacono, who's the the lead guy in the band, he's like in the front lines, and it's basically he's Leonidas and the, <laughs> Romans, the Spartans, and it's completely Romans versus Egyptians. It's with three hundred style choreography and. You know, that's I think that's pretty representative of a lot of heavy metal reception of that point of Roman history, though, you know, there's definitely more nuance beyond that. <laughs> uh, it reminded me a lot of like Virgil's little take on Actium. Um, mm-hmm. My students just had to read that, actually. And so we were just talking about so the depiction of Aeneas's shield, because that's what it's on, right? It's um, like, you know, all of Roman history on the, sh- on the shield, the magic new shield from the gods for the divine hero, blah, blah, blah. And we skip over all of this stuff that we go like spend so much time talking about the Battle of Actium. And I remember the imagery of like Egyptian gods fighting Roman gods. And so the framing of this as very like Rome versus Egypt, that really struck me and to see that in a, in a music video. I was like, wow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, in terms of kind of more recent, just a couple of years ago, you know, probably the most famous metal band to sing about Egypt is Nile. And they have that song, Vile Nilotic Rites, which just pulls whole lines from the newsreader in, in Rome, you know, talking about Antony. He worships dogs and reptiles. He blackens his eyes with soot like a prostitute. He is coupled with a sorceress. And I think that song sort of plays with those kind of propagandistic orientalist tropes, kind of tongue in cheek and all of that. But it's certainly, you know, part of all this context. Excellent. I'm trying to think about a a way to like wrap up all of my various threads that I'm pulling out of this movie. My other hot take is I really dig that scarab gong they bang at the beginning. I thought that was awesome. (laughs) (laughs) That's my favorite part of this movie. I was like, like, I want a movie about scarab gong. What's going on there? (laughs) It's just like a giant bug made of metal that they whack. Uh, I, I think I just think that was a brilliant creative choice, but amazing. Totally authentic, right, Nikki? <laughs> <laughs> Watch tomorrow. It, archaeologists in Cairo uncover. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that would be kind of weird conceptually, though, because for quite a while, the scarab was like the symbol of Egypt and used in like the Egyptians name for the country of Egypt. So you'd be like, like like hitting the name of your country. (laughs) That seems odd, but yeah, okay, we'll go with it. We're at about, we're a little over an hour. I don't want to keep you guys sort of over long. If you had any like hot takes or closing thoughts, you really want to like get out there. Radical political messages. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I got some trivia too that I found that I thought was pretty wild. Not actually that much trivia, but 
The main one is is apparently Norman Mailer blames this movie for Marilyn Monroe's death. What? So the the well, it's a kind of it's a little circuitous, but like this movie went so over budget that 20th Century Fox had to like reroute funds from other productions that were going on. One of which was Something's Got to Give, which was Marilyn's like last last film. And Norman Mailer in his like biography said like part of like her being out of work was like contributed to her decline. Also, Elizabeth Taylor did not like this movie. I have a quote from her is that they cut out the heart, the essence, the motivations, the very core and tacked on all these battle scenes. It should have been about three large people, but it lacked reality and passion. I found it vulgar. (laughs) I guess I, I kind of, I don't know if I agree. I don't think I found it vulgar, but I don't know how I'm supposed to feel about these characters. Mm -hmm. Like after the movie, I'm like, am I supposed to feel sad for Cleopatra? Am I supposed to feel sad for Antony? What what am I supposed? What did you guys feel after this movie? Yeah, when this when when curtain happened, what was the sensation? Mm-hmm. <laughs> he's got this like wicked grin on his face. <laughs> I didn't know what to think. I it was kind of a. I mean, I understand that the, the ending with tableau of her lying in state with her, you know, her shiny her shininess, you know, and the kind of the send off. Such was the end of the last of so many noble rulers, which I thought was an awesome dig at Octavian. Just like <laughs> Queen Padme right Amidala. And like, and yeah. like the Ptolemies, noble rulers. Yeah, maybe a couple of them <laughs> like her, but <laughs> there's some interesting. Yeah, yeah, the Ptolemies were interesting. You Um, get a couple of teenage twerps and weirdos. A lot of of people killing off their own family members in the Ptolemies. And yet they call themselves brother lovers. (laughs) Yeah, and then there's that. (laughs) That was the... I mean, there was a discussion on Classics Twitter a couple weeks ago, like how a Hellenistic kind of history drama needs to happen like on the successors of alexander which would like would be so cool because there's just so much there to work with like um all the power politics the intrigue a lot of strong and interesting female characters like uh, arsinoe the second and uh, berenice and and i think would it's just there's just so much potential there you know we, and this goes back to my point where there's so much from alexander to actium to echo peter green's book here that's just completely ignored because it's just alexander and then cleopatra you know so hopefully this is if anybody who has any sort of directors or people who write this stuff are listening you know this podcast is actually a backdoor to hollywood the power players and elites <laughs> that, that just we just green light scripts like day in day out that's all we're doing back here <laughs> yeah once it gets to movies we dig stamp of approval <laughs> <laughs> movies no, we I, want if they existed <laughs> i totally agree that like Alexander is more interesting after he's dead <laughs> and sort of like the things that happen like right post Alexander is far more intriguing and would be so entertaining. It's like why Game of Thrones picks up after Robert's already king. And basically like Game of Thrones really starts when Robert Baratheon dies. Cause that's yeah. when like the real the stuff happens. For sure. But also, you know, we need to get out of the, on the other hand, we should get out of the kind of, Greco-Romano centrism and you know and that's why something like on as we mentioned earlier series on Hatshepsut or earlier Egyptian history mm-hmm. happened. Okay. Nikki any closing thoughts? 
I mean, <laughs> I don't know. Like at that last scene, I was looking at her costume <laughs> and thinking kind of about uh, the historic stuff. And, you know, I mean, there's the idea that, you know, she died from a snake bite. Probably that wasn't really a thing, um, especially not the Egyptian asp. They're actually not that poisonous. I was They're about to say, aren't they like not super lethal? Like, <laughs> yeah, like only like 10 to 15% of people will actually die from a bite from an Egyptian asp. Oh my gosh. And it takes <laughs> a really long time and in either case you're just going to be miserable and it's a big snake how you're going to get that in there plus it's cleopatra i mean the ptolemies like i said were known for killing off each other's siblings you know they were all experts in poison it was just kind of part of being a political figure at that time so i mean i get that this is kind of the myth that has come up around her but i really <laughs> i really don't think that's what she would have done i think it would have been some sort of a poison like hemlock and opium together um, mm-hmm. so you basically the opium make sure make sure that you're like <laughs> yeah you know generally gener- not even conscious um but you know i was thinking about that and then um that headdress she wears with that gold outfit is amazing like that's one of the costume bits that made me happy about Mm -hmm. this i mean it's not obviously it's not a hundred percent accurate but like that isis headdress with the two feathers and the sun in the middle and than the vulture wings that is actually like a historic thing um that's awesome so mm. i was sitting there and ogling that the hats were pretty darn good like there were a couple stinkers that were kind of like the 1960s floral turban things but otherwise the the hair and the headdresses were actually pretty decent at least relative to earlier egypt so so yeah i mean <laughs> that's huh. what i was thinking about at the end of the movie i mean <laughs> right well in that yeah. case i i just have one final question for for everyone which which is what this movie for a long time was the most expensive movie ever made and stayed that way until uh, like the 90s, at least, I think. Was it Titanic that outdid it? Uh, Titanic's up there, but there's other ones. But the, the one that surprised me, so I looked up the, the most adjusted for inflation, most expensive movies. Number one surprised me. Oh, no. It's not what you think. The other top five are, are I'd say, fairly predictable because you've got you got three of them are Avengers movies. Okay, I was good. That was my guess. I was like, yeah. is it Avengers? <laughs> well, I, I was going to say, do you, do you want to guess what the number one is? I would It's from a franchise. Like Age of Ultron or something. Age of Ultron is number two. <laughs> I mean, wasn't Avatar up there? Uh, it's up there, but it's not, it's not top five. Not top five. It's 14 currently. Okay. This wow. franchise actually has a lot of entries in here. I, mean, uh, I also give you a hint. It's also owned by Disney. Star Wars? One of no, the Star it's now, Wars. It's now Star Wars. One of the Star Wars. Well, you said that Age of Ultron was two, so mm-hmm. I would have thought either Infinity War or Endgame would surpass that with just uh, how, many, f- how many actors they had to pay. <laughs> yeah. They're four and five currently. I think in terms of like just singular dollars, they might be ahead. No, they're actually not, but... Uh, for inflation but no number one is pirates of the caribbean on stranger tides which is the fourth or fifth one i think i haven't seen that i haven't seen that one either i i i don't remember which one that is but it is 379 million dollars how much of that is johnny depp's cut right (laughs) yeah (laughs) lord anyways takeaway from cleopatra is pirates of the caribbean on stranger tides is the most expensive movie ever made Uh, we, I, if you guys, unless if you don't have any parting words, we can we can say our farewells, do our last plugs, also, which is the most important thing. If people want to find you on the interwebs, where can we direct them? Well, I'm on Twitter at Metal Classicist. 
and uh, I have a, a blog, a Heavy Metal Classicist. So just you know, type in those words, and you'll find it. And I have a Facebook page, uh, Heavy Metal and the Ancient World. So those are sort of my social media platforms for you know my public scholarship. I actually don't have much. Um, <laughs> I don't know if we mentioned this at any point, but I'm not actually a classicist. I'm an engineer. So the only thing I really have is related to farming safety. Um, <laughs> if you're interested in farming safety, I do have um, <laughs> the agricultural self-report system. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> yeah, so this is a hobby for me, <laughs> but that's about it. Well, no, we, we needed you because like you had the Egypt knowledge that we didn't bring. So. Yeah, and it's not even like my favorite time period. Like I said, I'm like obsessed with Hatshepsut and like 18th and 19th dynasty, which is where you get like Akhenaten and Ramses. But I'm not like a professional at it. So my only my only social media like stuff is for my actual scholarly work, which is in engineering agricultural safety so legit but yeah <laughs> no but that. thank you guys so much for coming on i really loved having you yes. and we got and you, you oh, doors open if you have any other movies that jump to you and you want to come and talk about like just shoot us a line yes please thanks so much for inviting us uh this was fantastic good and i hope you had yeah, fun. Was a lot of fun excellent yeah. yay